Here's to you. I'm Bill Robain. I'm listening to the Walter Paisley Movie House. Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios, I'm here with my engineer, Jason Harris. Our music was created for us by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rory. Today's podcast is brought to you by Bjorn and Bjork's House of Porn and Pork, your place for experimental music and erotic cuisine. Today's guest is one of the most prolific actors in the industry. Since the age of 13, her acting credits number at 248 with at least 18 more either in the can, in production, or in development at this time. She's also a producer, writer, and director with over 20 projects in those capacities, including her 2016 feature directorial debut, The Topical and Haunting Model Hunger. Her work has garnered over 50 award nominations from various festivals and competitions, with her winning 35 of those. She's been a regular columnist for Fangoria Magazine and a contributing writer to Tenebra Magazine for years. From 2006 to 2010, she and former Twisted Sister frontman Dee Snyder hosted the weekly talk show Fangoria Radio for Sirius Satellite Radio. Like us, she is a champion of physical media, having co-produced the documentaries VHS Massacre and VHS Massacre 2, celebrating the joys of the independent video store and the aftermath of media in a world of streaming. Want cult cred? Well, the number of iconic movies she has appeared in would take the rest of this podcast to name, but here are just a few. After getting her start at the age of 13 in the legendary Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains, she went on to appear in Vampire's Kiss. Who doesn't love that one? Lonely in America, Shriek of, <laughs> Shriek of the Lycanthrope, Head Cheerleader, Dead Cheerleader, Mulva, Zombie Ass Kicker, Killjoy 2, Deliverance from Evil, Being Michael Madsen, Abducted 2, The Reunion, Chainsaw Cheerleaders, Teen Ape vs. the Monster Nazi Apocalypse, I'm going to do that one again, Teen Ape vs. <laughs> the Monster Nazi Apocalypse, Dollface, Hellblock 13, Killer Rack, Model Hunker, and a lot of movies with the word bikini in the title. She's been yes. part... <laughs> yes, it's true. She's been part of the Troma Entertainment Network, repertory players since 1993 and has appeared in many of their classics including Terror Firmer, my personal favorite, Tromeo and Juliet, The Toxic Avenger 4, Citizen Toxie, Hashtag Shakespeare Shitstorm, and Doggy Tales 1, Lucky's First Sleepover. That's right, Troma not makes kids porno. movies. <laughs> not, not a porno. Not a porno. People are like, wow, that's gotta be a porno. But no, it's a children's It's a real. kids movie by Troma. Yes! The only one! <laughs> She's worked with such cult legends as Julie String, Dan Haggerty, Lynn Lowry, Lemmy, Jan Michael Vincent, Sex Pistols members Steve Jones and Paul Cook, Paul Williams, Gunnar Hansen, Michael Berryman, Marilyn Chambers, Fred Rerun Barry, Joe Fleshaker, Sid Haig, E.G. Daly, James Gunn, Linnea Quigley, Laura Dern, Brink Stevens, Monique Dupree, Doug Sackman, Bill Mosley, Tony Todd, Adrian Barbeau, Kane Hodder, Dee Wallace, Barbara Crampton, Vernon Wells, Trent Haga, Conrad, Plan for Nine Out, Plan Nine from Outer Space, Brooks, Felisa Rose, and former podcast guest Lloyd Kaufman, and oh, so many more. This is an interview over two years in the making, so please welcome Draculina Magazine's Scream Queen of the Decade and the Meryl Streep of Horror, Ms. Debbie Rashawn. Thank you, and may I take that intro with me wherever I go? Absolutely. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. <laughs> I need to walk into a mall to get a bagel. 
I want to play that in the speaker. That was awesome. That was awesome. Thank Bravo. You. Thank you, you so much. You have been a prolific, prolific person in the industry. <laughs> to try and even encompass a little was pretty tough. So. Right. And no, that was awesome. And I thank you. And thank you for having me on. It is two years in the making, but anything good is what? It's worth absolutely waiting. worth waiting for. Yes. <laughs> So, so how have you been? Awesome. I, I'm seeing your guitars behind you. So you play? Yes. Awesome. I know I, I pretend to. These you are amazing to? guitars. These amazing guitars. So um, they they kind of like they speak for themselves. They play for themselves on occasion. I'll uh, so. I'll take just a just a second here to try and turn and capture it. But ignore the mic for a sec. But I've got my my wall. Let's make a lot of noise on this just to show you my oh. wall of guitars. And banjos wow. and mandolins. You should be in front here. of that. You should be in front of that when I'm in front of this, and then people think, "Oh, this is a music it's show." It's a music I'm podcast. Turning the dial. No, this is just art. It's nice to have art around you. It Absolutely. Doesn't matter what form. So I've got so many notes, but honestly, there's there's just so much to cover. But I just kind of wanted to to talk to you. I've watched so many interviews with you. I've seen Debbie Rashawn's Confidential. I don't know how many times. But I just kind of wanted to take a few minutes to just kind of talk to you, just Debbie. We've, we've all been trapped inside for the past year. What have you done with your time? Well, a lot of different things. But mostly I have focused my time on, um, uh, in certain segments of the lockdown, more successful than the others. I have written a lot for my book, From the Underbelly to the Underground. Um, I've been working on my podcast, which is a narrative. It's not like yours where it's um, you're interacting. Yeah, obscurities, you know, bouncing. Right? Yeah, obscurities, mm -hmm. yeah. And uh, so that has been very joyful and a lot of fun for me, covering topics that I really dig. Like, I, I love that kind of stuff. I've always loved to watch it, read about it, and now I get to talk about it. Um, and it's just focused on that, you know. And I, I've done many, many years... Uh, talking about film on radio since like the 90s on terrestrial WBAI and then going to pseudo radio, which was the very first internet radio st station in existence. Mm -hmm. And then going on to Yada, which may have been the second, but that was like 99. So I wasn't sure by then. Probably. I mean, for the amount of money they put into it, it was cr so ahead of its time and not really on the mark to where internet radio was going because it was being financed by like Chase Bank and had all these like crazy big names on it. I mean, Johnny Rotten had his own show, um, so, but it was also visual. But anyway, so the point being that I've done like a lot of like talk radio. And then of course you mentioned uh, Sirius XM. Mm -hmm. It was Sirius back then. Uh, but yeah, the joy about this is just being able to like storytell mm -hmm. and, um, so I'm really enjoying that. So and doing some other things as well, like, you know, working on um, various different projects. There's going to be another documentary I'm doing with Thomas Seymour that I did the VHS massacres with. I'm going to be like co-producing that, putting that together and stuff like that. So a lot of stuff um, in the works. And like while a lot of people sort of uh, pine over the loss of the in-person convention, it has been off the hook with doing appearances for conventions that could never have afforded to fly you out. Mm -hmm. So it's actually been a busier year 
for me personally, you know, because I'm, well, not a walking dead person or something like that, where money's not an, not an issue. It's sort of like, okay, well, how many indie people do we want? One or two? You know what I mean? That, that sort of thing. So for me, it's been quite an incredible year. Um, it's not as though that the actual film shoots and stuff haven't been missed. But on the other hand, there's been, if you look at the positive, there's a lot of stuff that has been going on and a lot of stuff that needs like pre-production work. Mm -hmm. So now's your time, you know, to sort of try to get that part done and get some ideas going, get some writing going and stuff like that for when this all kind of changes. So it's been like a reset in a way, but I don't look at it as a bad way because I like to do my best to try to like um, get things going and not just be on call as an actor. But I gotta be honest, those missing those um, has been paramount as well. So, but I, you try to look at the positive, yeah. right? You try to look at the, po I mean, there's a lot of stuff that went on and a lot of, a lot of hard stuff that's gone on, but you gotta keep, you gotta keep uh, kicking, like yeah. Bruce Lee would say, gotta yeah. keep kicking. So you're Correct. you're up in Canada now, correct? Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. so you guys actually handled it a lot better than we did in the states. So well, <laughs> maybe originally, but there's massive outbreaks now. Whereas I find the states um, is more on. Even though case numbers are very high, they seem to be at a different point in it. Right? It almost seems like. And whereas in Canada, overall, everybody, everywhere, I should say, being slightly different, it's kind of peaking now. Mm -hmm. So the peak has just been later than the states, probably because it's more rural for the most part, not for the big cities. Yeah. But um, so, I mean, it's just it, you just can't avoid it. So it's just kind of happening at a different time. And uh, yes, living for 25 years in, in New York City, I certainly... You know, I was so heartbroken, everything that happened there in the very beginning. Um, and I felt so, so bad. I almost felt like I, I should be there to try to get through it with everybody, all of my lifelong friends that are there and still are there. Um, I guess a lot of moved now, but because of it, the expense and everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's you know, kind of in a really weird way felt bad. But now, you know, now it's sort of been uh, dealing with what's happening here because mm -hmm. no one gets off the hook with this thing. I mean, it, it's it's to various degrees. It's to, you know, where you are and all that kind of stuff. But no one is off the hook. It's it's worldwide. And if we don't understand that what's happening a few countries away won't affect you, then you just don't get it. Yeah. My opinion. Yeah. I, yeah. I would agree. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So you all in this together? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I do. At least we should be. Yeah, <laughs> at least we should. Right. So you you mentioned New York. So you you went to New York at age seventeen, and that was the early nineties. And so you were you were 84. kind of eighty four. I'm sorry. Eighty four. Eighty four. I'm sorry. Eighty four. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Wow. So you got to see some of the, the heyday of New York back when it was a lot, when it was a little more dangerous, a little more seedy and a hell of a lot cooler, in my opinion. Uh, right. Midnight movie yeah. houses and whatnot. So what was that like for a teenager in that environment? It was 
absolutely incredible because here's the thing. While there was, you know, I wasn't like attached to anybody uh, in British Columbia where I was moving from mm -hmm. in the sense that like I'm very estranged from my family. So I didn't have like my family saying anything to me, but I did have like what people I did know uh, coming off the streets. It's not like you had good friends. Right. But you did have a couple friends. Mm -hmm. um, so I did have people saying hand wringing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like whenever you get out of a car, run into the building that you're going into like really, really quick. While they may not have been wrong at the same time coming from where I came from, it's kind of like I already knew a big part of how to be super insanely careful. You're, you, so I felt you, like you were in Vancouver for a while, which yeah, is, which is a city. It's a big, it's a big city for those who don't know. It's a, I've been there a couple times. It's a, it's a it's, city city. It's a city city. And the thing is too, like it had a really in the seventies, it had a really seedy underground, which people just didn't know about because mm -hmm. until recently they just thought it was this, lovely la 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 city where in Canada where everybody is like insanely nice and polite and there's no like perverts or rapists or drug addicts or any of these horrible things like in other countries certainly the United States for example but okay this is not the case and so coming from the streets I was like well yeah I gotta be careful and I gotta learn the new uh, street lingo as far as safety goes meaning that in that regard mm -hmm. and so yeah I've got to learn that but it's not something that stopped me I didn't come from like a white picket fence home right I wasn't like full of like anxiety and oh my god should I do it I was just like here's an idea I'm gonna do it like I just had that kind of like nothing's gonna stop me I don't know anybody there mm -hmm. it doesn't matter I really don't like anybody here. So there was like nothing holding me back or tying me down or, or telling me to stop. And if there's anything that I've done in my life, that's kind of like just thrown myself into things. I've just really thrown and not worried about, you know, do I know people or do I have this safety net or that safety net? There really isn't in life. And like, once you understand that, then you get more freedom. Freedom's the word I was just thinking of as you were describing that. I'm like, that's true freedom, just to be able to just abandon everything and go try something new. That's fantastic feeling. Yeah. I mean, it really, <laughs> how worse could it get? I mean, I knew yeah. I was going to, you know, need a job. I knew I wanted to study in the classes from all the books I had read mm -hmm. in Vancouver. I wanted to go study with the people who wrote them. Yeah. You know, and you studied, I, I with, you studied with Penny Allen. Penny Allen, For, I sure did. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know, uh, if you haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, shame on you. She's the head cashier in that, and she is incredible. Yeah. She uh, is incredible. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I, feel, I know I interrupted you for a moment. I just wanted to clarify No, she's, she's so incredible. And um, th there's a couple of really quick stories about that, just because it's like when you're so young and, and you're in the class. And, you know, I even hired her for a couple of one-on-one -on -one classes before I had... Um, some film work that I had landed because I wanted to be really, you know, as prepared as possible as an actor. Uh, but no, I was doing her classes and in my class, class was Peter Green, which people may or may not know. If you know the indie scene, you know him, but he was, um, for the bigger movies that he was in, he was in Pulp Fiction, um, but he was clean in Clean Shaven, which was an insanely popular New York indie movie. Um, 
and he's done a lot of stuff, but an incredibly intense actor, wonderful. But one time I was going to see her for a one-on-one -on -one session and um, I didn't realize that she was doing the one-on-one -on -one, uh, coaching, if you will, uh, with Harvey Keitel and he was preparing for Bad Lieutenant. Bad Lieutenant. <laughs> so at that very time, and I even auditioned for that movie, I almost got the role of one of the girls in the car, but I didn't get it. Like I, I went back like three times almost, but didn't get it. They wanted like a really super girl next door, I think kind of, you know, girl. It's a brutal scene. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was an amazing scene. It was an amazing scene. But yeah, I've never been the girl next door. That's okay. But, you know, um, so I remember that. And her husband, uh, Charles Lawton, was actually Al Pacino's private coach his entire career until Charles Lawton passed away. So, I mean, there, there you go. I mean, it's... Um, and all that is not to name drop, it's to say like the quality, the kind of actors that we're talking about are very intense, dedicated actor actors. Like they are, yeah, while they are stars, movie stars in some cases, they're also like really dedicated, true New York actors. So that is like really where I was, my head was, you know, in, in the beginning, so. I, I get the feeling when I watch you and I've seen, I don't know how many things. I was actually, Jason and I were talking, since you and I are about the same age, I've mm -hmm. followed your career from the day I discovered you back in probably 93 or something. I was like, this person's interesting, compelling. I want to see everything she's doing. And I just kind of started following your career for there because I've, I've been there then step by step as a fan. Yeah. So it's been yeah. really interesting watching that progression. So when I, when I learned that you'd studied with Penny Allen, who is, I mean, pretty well-renowned that she was at uh, the Strasbourg School at that time, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so you're obviously, I, I don't get the feeling your method. I get I get the feeling you, you approach it differently. What is, what is your approach to a role? Well, it is, it, it's, okay. So the training is, uh, for me, based in method, method as far as emotions go, working with emotions. I also studied uh, Meisner, I also studied, um, uh, well, you know, Michael Chekhov is really the one that spoke to me the most mm -hmm. because, uh, well, I, I studied with Uta Hagen and um, a number of people over at HP Studios. I'm sorry, did you study uh, with her directly? Yes, with her directly, with her directly. <sighs> and uh, so, I mean, like, but all these approaches, you have to understand, were very... Um, I don't want to say dry because they're so powerful, but they're more like she was very much about like writing down a novel's worth of information about your character yeah. and, and important stuff like what region do they come from? You need to learn that that region, not just that that state, but the small uh, piece in that within that state, their regional dialect. Like it's, all these things I learned from her, the de a lot of details. Building that However, backstory. Backstory. Yeah. And from uh, Penny Allen, it was like the emotion, but not using emotions that were recent, mm -hmm. but using emotions that were old. Because when you use emotions that are recent, you're not in control of them. It's too close. And you're still too close. Too close. Exactly. So the, the older ones are more, you know, you could use them better because you can control them better and sort of make them fit into the scene and not just use them. So it's sort of like a weird, you're in the right 
world, but you, you, it's not in the right scene for the movie. Anyway, getting too deep there, but just no, to you're say fine. <laughs> Michael, uh, Michael Chekhov spoke to me the most because he was also method. And while people kind of write him off as like, um, oh, he's uh, outside in, but it's just as deep. It's just going from, you know, you're making a movement, for example, could be a punch. But then if you really do it with full intent, it's going to like radiate. How does that make you feel when you did that? And it's kind of like working from the outside in. And for someone like me, who had spent the bulk of my first two decades on the earth, uh, shutting out the emotions. So it was easier for me to uh, find mine and work with mine in that regard. And then I also studied um, with Chicago City Limits in New York for about two years. And uh, so learned a lot of really great improv um, rules, if you will, or guidelines or, you know, the way to do it properly. Mm -hmm. And not in, in improv, not just meaning oh, say something that's not there, but actually understanding the dynamics of improv. So I studied that like um, religiously, so to speak, for about two years. So I incorporate that, like mostly what I use, use is Michael Chekhov and Chicago City Limits, which is hilarious because they're, one is like the, the nephew of Anton Chekhov, you know, series, right. series. And the other one is, you know, but yeah, but equally valuable. You know, they're both like in the moment. Improv is, is about being in that moment, being true to mm -hmm. it. So I could see that those two being very complementary to each other because they're both pretty much saying the same thing. Be true in that moment. Right, right, exactly. And to be able to use improv, not just in the comedic sense, which is of course right. what you were learning in that particular school, or, um, you know, they would perform at night. So all of their students, myself included, we would be like be the ushers and we would, you know, sell the tickets, do right. this and that, and study all day and then do that with them at night and they would perform in front of people, our teachers. And, uh, but, you know, they would also give you the skills so that you could use that within very heavy, serious situations, not not just with the comedy, of course. Mm -hmm. So, and that's that's like, you know, if you're able and it's not like the type of, you know, pinter type of dialogue. And there is that stuff that comes along with like with the movie I did called Exhumed and, and others, but where the every line is that important, like yeah. for real, it's really, really that important. Yeah. Then that's different. But otherwise, if you can add to something, you know, compliment it, um, then, you know, just not do the old my my character wouldn't say this. Not that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my character yeah. would say this and they would say that, too. And then they would do this and then at least offer that to the director. So, yeah. anyway, I love this stuff. So, so you did some off-Broadway as well. And this particular of interest to me, you did a very obscure Tennessee Williams play. Uh, you, you did the, the Negdis Fraulein. And uh, you played the Cockalooney. And I... I'm fascinated. Uh, for those who don't know, this is uh, a theater of the absurd experiment by Williams. Uh, it's yep. rarely produced. I don't think I've ever seen it, and I I seek out this sort of stuff. Uh, so when I saw you did that, I just had to ask, what what was that? Who who directed that? Do you remember? Oh, do I remember her name? Uh, well, it was one of the two um, Juanita Walsh uh, who brought me in. She was actually my teacher 
for voice at the HB studios. And she just, for whatever reason, for a fortuitous type of thing, just wanted me to come and audition for the theater company that she was a co-founder of. So um, the director, her name is Melanie. <laughs> I have to look that Got one it. up. Yeah, uh, no worries. Melanie, <laughs> I was just curious. Back, <laughs> back to the uh, but I, I should know, and I, I should find out. It was but some time ago. <laughs> some time ago, some time ago. But um, it was, uh, yeah, amazing. We did a series of Tennessee Williams. Some, uh, they're all like one act plays mm -hmm. and that was one of them. And um, I actually named it. So even back then I was like getting my writing chops, uh, Tennessee and Three Keys, because we had three shorts and he lived in the keys right. and it just seemed to be like right and it worked. But Gennady's Fraulein was, is just one of those out they're crazy you have to be a fan of like either the absurd or tennessee williams to really fully enjoy it like it, it's you know it, it was great i can't see anybody really unless you're i don't know theater of the new city or somewhere uh wanting wanting to do it now i mean again not unless it was like coupled or or sandwiched between a couple of his more famous uh plays to make a point yeah. but um it was incredible. And honestly, I kid you not, it's not a line to make anybody laugh, but I went to the Bronx Zoo and I watched birds because I was obsessed with like bird behavior. Okay, I'm on stage the whole time, <laughs> like a bird. Mm -hmm. Once in a while, I'm making a sound, like when it was my time to make a sound, but that whole time. So not gonna stand there, not gonna do these ideas of what a bird does, meaning basically end up looking like a chicken. So I just like literally was at the Bronx Zoo and I watched birds and I just like tried to remember little things. I practiced at home and so into like the, the deep immersion of acting. Yeah. And I, and I did it, but it paid off because my first ever review ever was in backstage and they said, I'll never forget it. The first line ever, ever written about me, Debbie Roshan acquitted herself well as the cockalooney bird. That's fantastic. I leave it there. Top that. That is I mean, fantastic. Like, how many people how many people, Doug Jones, how many people are going to get even noticed for something that's like sort of this side thing that's just making weird movements? So I, would, I can't even tell you how happy I was. Well, the little theater major in me just exploded when I saw that because I'd read that play and I'd never talked to anyone who's done it. So that when, I, when yeah. I saw that, I was like, ah! Because <laughs> I love Tennessee Williams. I love Theater of the Absurd. The two yeah. together just have to be magic. That's fantastic. Yeah. Really, yeah. So, thank, and thank you for talking about this stuff because I never get to. So I'm getting oh, all good. excited. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, this is stuff for good. you. So when, when you were, so you're doing these plays, you're working improv. Uh, when did you start making the transition toward film? I know you'd done some um, some TV work. There were some um, little PSAs you'd worked on. Oh, one of my personal favorites, the one nine hundred Confessions line commercial. Yes, that's yes. a that's a fine one. <laughs> yes, I know. Well, I had someone once say to me, "Oh, like this is a long time after." Yeah, you did those uh, sex phone light, and I was like, "No, no, no, no." 
the dating and the confession lines different. Yes, very different. The, the late eighties, I guess it was very, very different because there was um, a phone line for everything. Right. And to just sort of lump them all into the sex thing. No, it wasn't like that. You, yeah. you obviously weren't there and paying attention because you had the confessions line where people like apparently mm -hmm. got on and paid to hear people like say their deepest, darkest confession. I mean, it's, it's kind of like the of penthouse forum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like not even that. Like, you know, if I was just like, yeah, I told my boss off or, or whatever yeah. it may be, but yeah, it was kind of like <laughs> to entice, spend money. Oh yes. It has a uh, sexual flavor to it. You know, yeah. like people that's sure. like weird things they've done perhaps, but yeah. Yeah. And now for, just people do it online all the time. I mean, for free. That's our, our, our listeners who, who don't, who are too young to know the one 900 number craze. There was a Freddy Krueger one. From... <laughs> yes. Remember there was all kinds, like wasn't even uh, van, like vanilla ice. Vanilla and, ice. And, I did, all, like, yeah. Like numbers or I think the Corys had them. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. It was a mat. It was a craze. It was yes. a craze. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It must have been some kind of money and all the, the psychics lines. Oh, oh my yeah. god. <laughs> Madam Cleo. Oh Lord. Yeah, Madam Oh, we're just traveling down memory lane for Gen X now. <laughs> yeah, Gen X. It was fun now. It was fun. So some money. So no, you're, you're doing those things, and then, um, uh, so you've done The Fabulous Stains, which is an iconic cult film. And I know that you're a fan of cult films. I've heard you say that many yeah. times in, in yeah. interviews, and we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole in a few minutes. Uh, but, but from there, at what point did you really start getting noticed and getting into some films where you were getting noticed? I think Abducted 2 probably was where it really started for you, but I think a little earlier even there were some things going on there. Right. Well, like you said, I was doing some some TV stuff like with Trauma. I kind of started with them 92, 93. Mm -hmm. So I was doing the bumpers that would come on in between their movies because places like HBO and Cinemax and cable channels from around the world, like in Germany and UK and all these other places, they would, when they started out, they would always get the tra trauma library mm -hmm. because it was so cheap, right? And they were starting out to get, you know, it up off the ground. They immediately went to trauma. Mm -hmm. And uh, of course, Lloyd's the person to tell you this story in detail, but- He did. The bottom line. Yeah. I, talk, I talked to him a couple of weeks ago and, and that was one thing I was really curious about. They were like the first to be called upon for a massive library that a place like an HBO starting out, keep in mind, mm -hmm. went to. But then they wanted these kind of bumper comedic bits in between the movies to introduce them. And so I was doing a lot of those for trauma. Those are like the first things that I did with them. Mm -hmm. And um, and of course, you know, it goes out saying that as they all grew, they would dump trauma and get like, you know, quote, more serious uh, stuff and quote, better. Look, what, you know, I'm just saying uh, what they thought was and uh, move on. And but they all got their bones with trauma, like to get up and running because it was, you know, it was good for trauma. It was good for them. But then they would, you know, never remember trauma, if you will, because they wanted the more, you know, upper class uh, viewership. Anyway, that's how I got started with Trauma. And so, yeah, I'd done a couple of other movies. Like I did the last movie that Roberta Finley ever made and is still not released to this day called Band. 
Um, and so like, it's, I'm still something that I, that I keep after the, uh, place that owns the rights to it, to, to, they need to do this. They What's need holding to up the release on that? Just a combination of things. One, it was like they had, to, they had all these, like, uh, they didn't know, do we have the rights? Do we not have the rights? They did have the rights. Could they find the actual film stock? Because it was being held hostage in Duart. So they got it out of Duart. They, they put up a picture, I want to say, less than a year ago of the film cans, right? And now what's happening i don't know maybe they have to get the money together to get it um re-edited to to the the place that it was because it was a completed movie it had the the credits and music cues every it was good to go it was taking a can but for whatever reason it just stopped roberta finley just didn't have any interest in it because it wasn't horror and you know she had done porn before that so she had a certain interest and then she did you know, softcore and all that stuff. So she's got like a lot of different things that she did, but this was like straight up comedy, like a comedy of the eighties, like about new wave and punk. And like, it had like these really fun, fun. It's like one of those things that it, it's straight out of the year it was made. And if anybody likes those kind of movies, this is so for you. And I just find it like it's a crime that it has not been released yet because everything has been found. But alas, it's kind of like the last step is kind of the biggest because it takes money. Yeah. So that was, well, that was one thing. And then I did one of the last movies that uh, Chuck Vincent had made, um, Party Incorporated, which was Marilyn Chambers' first non-porn movie. And she sings a song in a mall. So, I mean... Holy cow. Like, who would have ever thought to do that? It's a really fun movie. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot it's of fun. fun. Yeah, and it's still got a lot, lot of sexuality to it. But, uh, yeah, so I was, like, uh, doing these movies with uh, these particular directors. And in both cases, I, I basically I either had one line or was straight up extra in the movie before that. And that's, but that's how I met them. And then the next movie, I had a role in it in both cases. But that's how I started in the late 80s and then doing those TV commercials and the bumpers for trauma, then Abducted 2, which was a million dollar movie made back in Canada in Vancouver, where I was from. So go figure how strange that was. 10 years later, exactly, 94, I flew back to Vancouver for the first time to make a movie. How, so, how was that? How was that for you? It was, uh, movie-wise, it was amazing because I could immerse, immerse myself in it. Um, whether somebody's a fan of the movie, they don't like the movie, we all were, like, working so sincerely. And I think that's what gives it sort of that uh, campy goodness mm -hmm. because when people are really sincere about what they're doing, whether Absolutely. it comes off or not, it's got, like, that certain weird element to it. And um, so, I mean, I, I had a great time. How was it going back? Well, it was kind of weird for me, but it was also very safe because I was shooting up in the... Oh, I'm so sorry. My phone's ringing. It's okay. It will stop in a minute. That's okay. It's not actually... It's a good blues riff. Did I turn that off before? But here we go. This is live. <laughs> um, and it will stop in a second. But anyway, um, sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, so you you were back weird. in Vancouver and and it was yeah and it, 
it was weird, but it was also um, good because I came back in a very positive note, number one. And number two, I was like shooting in the mountains of, you know, Vancouver. Like, so it, it was so removed from what I had experienced before. So probably the only thing in common at all was the airport. I imagine too. You know that? I did. <laughs> a little theremin action going. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So uh, did you did you feel um, I would imagine that that going back at that point, you felt a little more empowered than you did probably when you were living there in your youth and yeah, and probably changed your attitude and outlook as you were going back there. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was weird and it was good. It was sort of like, OK, the first like million dollar movie that I have a starring co-starring role in. Uh, and it's back there. So I was like, well, maybe this is sort of like closing the chapter or, you know, making everything not okay, but at least, you know, making uh, some smoothing out of the raw edges that mm -hmm. may be of the emotional type. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. And with that one, I know you've, I, I've seen you in interviews talk about that one being the one where it, it was your, I think you described it as your ultimate victim role was in that film and where, yeah. you, where you really felt like that was the one where you were, you really got to just kind of deal with that sort of emotion that you're putting into a character, someone who, who doesn't feel she can fight back and, and is, is basically being oppressed by this horrible hillbilly kidnapper guy. What was that like for you internally as you were, as you were going through all that? Well, the funny thing is I, I worked it so sincerely and hard and real for myself as I could be. And again, you know, this isn't throwing blame or shade or whatever words you want to use on anybody, but quite often in a lot of these movies and probably because of time and they, you know, they cast somebody who's capable, they shouldn't have to babysit anybody. So I, I, really put it in perspective by saying all that but at the same time without like tweaking of direction i feel like it was um I'm, i don't disagree with people who say it was kind of a whiny role because it was and i didn't know enough at that time to to do any different like to sort of like pull it back or tone it down or you know, use it only maybe less or whatever. I was just trying to be as 1000% as sincere as I could be at that time, you know, at that and that point that I was at. So I think it's, um, yeah, it was it was hard, though, and in a good way, but oh, it was super hard because I don't relate or I, I reject the uh, situations that victims have to put themselves in like uh just straight up movie victims right because there's never that you know uh, uh especially back then there, there's never that sort of um cathartic internally you're just you're just fighting back but it may not be able to come out until a later date or you know like in real life or uh, in a well-written movie or something. So it was actually one of the, the hardest roles I've ever played. Not the best role I've played, not the the um, most satisfying, but 
re it was satisfying in the sense that I walked away and I knew that I gave a thousand percent, no matter how it came off, I gave a thousand percent. So, uh, but yeah, it was, there was a big part of it that was just kind of like, that's just not, I don't really, I don't dig playing a victim because it's just, it just feels so crappy. Like it just like what taps into that stuff you know that just there's no resolution i mean even at the end where he falls off a cliff hmm. the, the, there's no like real resolution just kind of ends there so yeah i mean it had all of those the satisfaction of putting yourself into something a thousand percent but then also walking away with well you know it wasn't very cathartic but maybe it'll work in the movie and then watching the movie and seeing that okay well certain moments work but certain moments didn't work. So yeah. I hope that answers the question. It, it does. I, I, the reason I asked, I was curious because you're, you're kind of associated pretty much with playing powerful figures in so many of your movies. And that's one where you're not. And I wondered if it was hard to find empathy for that character, but it was so early in your career. I, I, I really yeah. just don't know. I was wondering about that. Yeah. Yeah, it was early. <laughs> and so therefore I just... I, uh, I didn't give it any kind of a different spin. And maybe if I was faced with that now, I would give, give it a diff different spin, perhaps, if I were allowed to. You know, again, that depends on the, the director, right? Um, it certainly wasn't written that way. But because I was the middle sister, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? So there was the super tough, the super <laughs> sexy, and I was sort of the Jan, the hand-wringing Jan. <laughs> if you will, right? Sort of like not the sexy one, not the top one, just kind of the, I don't know. So yeah, but I would have given it done today. I would have given it a different spin. Yeah. So you're right about, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that was a really curious. And that also kind of started for you. You've been in so many movies where I'm sure that, and in that case, it was you had Jan Michael Vincent and Dan Haggerty. What would you have them for? Three days, four days, <laughs> maybe a week? When they shot Actually, on that, there were ten days. Ten days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. how long? How long was that shoot? Do you recall offhand? Yeah, like four and a half weeks in the mountains. Okay. So that yeah. was that was, and you've been in, I'm sure, many movies where you get the big names in and you get them for a few days, and they just got to crank it out and get out the door. I, I call them John Carradine roles, where <laughs> it's yeah. they got to pay alimony and they'll do this role. So. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. And, you know, keep in mind, like uh, Dan Haggerty had done the original abducted movie. Mm -hmm. So he was more invested, if you will, because it was a reprisal of his role. And one of his good friends was John Michael Vincent, who was struggling so much during that time. Yes. And he brought him on that movie, like as a friend, told the director Boone uh, to, to hire him because he was trying to do him a favor and get him a in front of a camera again and some money and like for all the right reasons trying to help him because he was in the throes of addiction and all the kind of stuff that he was dealing with at that yeah. time very very sad end for him yeah yeah very so uh, on, when you're doing those movies where you've got like um you know a full cast a big and it's a low budget film but they brought in some big name and you've got them for a few days and you're shooting those out. You're shooting these things completely out of continuity and you're having to throw scenes in. What's that like as an actor when you're having to find emotion for something that you haven't even done the preface for yet or something like that? 
to find the emotion for give me give me a, an example like, like in, in one of those when you're shooting out of out of sequence like that and let's say you've got a a, a big scene a big moment but you haven't mm -hmm. shot all of the things leading up to that so you haven't really found the voice of that yet or maybe you have but you haven't worked mm -hmm. those scenes into it what does that feel like going into those well, you know, it's it's funny because it can you can also work that backwards in a sense because if you really understand the arc of the character, even if there's not one written, you can make one for yourself as an actor. You can kind of decide, okay, well, this is what, you know, where she came from, this is what she's going through, and this is how it ends, even if it's not, like, completely written for you. So if you look at the arc and you're saying, okay, well, this scene is taking place during this time, you can at least have a guesstimation of where they're at, right? And you can kind of, um, in a strange way, you could just really go go in and go crazy with it. And that can either get, that can also, I should say, give you the um, insight of how, okay, well, I know where she goes now, how far down or aside do I have to start? Like it can, it can give you insight if you try to look at everything like that. You know, where do I go to from here? So if you do the, the even if you do your death scene first, if you're dying, right? Or your end scene to the movie, if you don't, um, you could at least say, okay, well, it's gonna be really big or it's gonna be really subtle, but filled with, you know, angst. Okay, it's almost like it's, um, it's like a, a Google map, if you will. Like, you know where you're going to end up. Okay, well, that told you a lot of things. Now, how is it going to make sense as you go backwards? So no matter what you do, except for doing it in a row, like a play, you know, in, in the sequence, I should say, like a play, um, anything else is just going to have to, you're just going to have to figure out a way to work that. And so while it's not ideal in a lot of ways, it can also be insightful. Like, and, and then there's something else that I often tell people, I'll say, okay, now with the independent movies and you're working so fast and you're all over the place sequence wise, um, never feel bad if one scene, not the whole movie, but one scene is not right on the money because in a perfect world, you would have the time and uh, writing and director and all these kind of things to make that work and, and understand what that is. But sometimes you don't. So you cannot beat yourself up over that. And so often working super fast, uh, minimal takes and with something that, you know, the writing is pretty good, but you're, you're basically trying to improve it as you go along. And I find that if you can really nail 70 to 80% of your scenes, if the other ones are not quite there because of these other things that the audience doesn't know about, right? They don't know the reasons why they are the way they are, but you know, but if, so if you can do like 70 or 80% of the scenes that you're, you're pretty happy with, it kind of has a way to balance out if that makes sense. Yeah. You can balance out the performance. So there's that too. It's always fascinating me. I've, I've, I have a theater background, so I'm, as a performer, I know I'm gonna be doing this building towards something every night. Mm -hmm. I'm, even if it's the same thing every night, I'm building towards something in that reality. Doing it out mm -hmm. of sequence is so foreign to me, and so I'm always fascinated with how people do that. 
And that's yeah. where, of course, the, the Uta Hagen classes, I'm sure, came in handy and, and being able to build that backstory in and be able to fill some of those gaps. Right, right. And, and if you know where you're going, where you're starting and you're going with that, and you get to a point where you are more comfortable using your emotions, you can really kind of say, okay, well, it's not in sequence, not perfect, but I do know where in the game I am. Like, you know, am I two thirds of like losing it? And, and what does that mean? And you can kind of gauge, you know, an idea at least, and then try to get more specific from there, if that makes sense. It does, it does, yeah. But you have to have it plotted out. You have to have like the whole thing kind of like, you know, mathematically plotted out and then do the emotional work after that because right. otherwise you're going to be lost, sure. lost, yeah. flailing. <laughs> and no one's going to be there to blame the, the writer, director, or the, the, the budget because you had no time, right? They're just going to say, this person sucks, <laughs> right? They're like, they suck. You know, they have no idea all this other stuff that goes on, too. So it's so. something and it goes back to something that you, you talked about earlier, and that's the the commitment to the piece. And I, I've kind of got a rule when it comes to cult film, and, and it's something I've been obsessed with since I was five. And, and that is simply the, the idea of if anybody's winking at the camera, it's over for me. Even if it's a good film, I'm done. Yeah. But give me a shitty film where everybody's given 110%. I'm amazed. It's watchable. It's wonderful to me. And I'm not kissing your ass here. I'm being 100% honest. I have not seen a performance from you where you're not. That, I, that means a lot to me. It's not as though um, I haven't failed. But like I always say, it's never from a lack of trying. Like you have to make committed big choices. And if you're off the mark and there, you don't have a director there getting you back on the mark, then the worst thing that you can you can uh, say about me is that I was off. I did. I was. You know. Not. I didn't get that one. But it won't be from a lack of trying. And yeah, I mean, some people be. You know, I've had over the years. You can, as you can imagine, all kinds of people say all kinds of things about me. And the funniest ones to me are sort of like, you know, the always over the top blah, 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 whatever the case may be. And I'll be like, yeah, but you know what? I guarantee you, if I sat down with this person, they'd be watching all of my absurdist comedies. And they will have not have seen, like, Color from the Dark or Exhumed or, like, I could name a whole bunch, but this whole other world of film that I've done, they've only seen trauma or comedies mm -hmm. or stuff that got more attention. Yeah. And not these really serious stuff right and so like you got to put everything in context and just be okay with it and just yeah. say you know what reviewers aren't gods like they're not and we all know that now but you know that was such a big part of um uh of the re reality for your movie and that's why i truly believe people are gonna really hate me for this one but truly believe that they should shut down these reviews on Amazon. They should shut down reviews on even IMDb. Because like, number one, it's like, it's the insults are so old now. I just, okay, couple that come to mind out of a trillion. 
um, I just wasted 90 minutes of my life or uh, some other like completely it's they're so bad that I question if they ever saw the movie like they probably didn't and it's kind of a setup for people who just want to bag in a movie uh, for a, a trillion reasons that they may have that have nothing to do with actually watching the movie and it could be completely personal could have nothing to do with the movie that's not fair to the movie and all all the people in it because you know if, if the making this up if the gaffer's wife or husband just had a brutal uh, divorce and you know now it's their thing to destroy their career it just it's too it's not authentic enough for me yeah. so i feel that it's it it harms too many movies i i opinion. agree I, I i feel that the two biggest killers of people wanting to take chances are rotten tomatoes and the Razzies. I hate them both. It always yep. surprises people when I say I hate the Razzies. I do. I think yeah. they punish people for taking chances. And I hate that. I hate that. I, hate I would much rather see people take chances than do another Marvel movie. I uh, just would, you know, <laughs> seriously, I mean, there's not enough encouragement for this stuff. So yeah, I just, anyway, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I can, I, yeah, I can rant about that. Ask my son. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the MPAA. Don't get me going on them. There's no yeah. right way to do it. What's that, Jason? I said there's no right way to make a movie. There's no right way to make a movie, Jason says, and he's movie. right. You just make a movie. Yep. Yeah. 1,000% right, Jason. This concludes part one of our interview with Debbie Rashant. We'll see you in two weeks with part two. This has been the Walter Paisley Movie House coming to you from Nilbog Manor Studios. Our producer is Jason Harris. Our music is by Jonathan Harmon. And I am your host, Dylan Rari. Special thanks to our own Jason Harris for helping to set up this interview. And remember, as you're getting out and about again, be sure to tip your servers generously. Because at the Walter Paisley Movie House, we don't piss on hospitality. <laughs>